The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. This is Sportbox. Good to see you this Monday morning. Let's get into your headlines this hour. Marcus Soda shakes up German politics as the Bavarian Premier announces his intention to run for Chancellor against the CDU's Armin Laschet, with party leaders set to decide on their preferred candidate later today. Fed Chair Jerome Powell says the US economy is at an inflection point but warns risks remain. This as the Dow and the S&P hit fresh record highs ahead of the start of earnings season this week. Alibaba shares rallied despite regulators fining the e-commerce group $2.8 billion for violating China's anti-monopoly law. But the group says it does not expect to suffer any material impact from the move. Microsoft is in advance talks to buy speech recognition group Nuance for $16 billion. As CNBC sources learn, the deal could be announced as early as today. And CNBC assesses how to ensure a sustainable future. As we launch our ESG Council, speaking to founding members Jan Yenish from Lafarge Wholesome and Imagine co-founder Paul Coleman. Morning, everybody. Well, Bavarian leader Marcus Soda has added his name to the race to succeed German Chancellor Angela Merkel. The centre-right parties will now need to decide who will stand as candidate in September's federal election, Soda or Christian Democrat leader Armin Laschet. The decision could come as soon as this week. Soda said he was not looking to split the coalition by running against Laschet, adding they both are suited for the chancellery. There's a big expectation to come to a shared solution sooner rather than later regarding the question of the candidacy for chancery. The conversation was not conclusive in terms of the results so far. We've established that both are suitable and both are willing. What's important is that we also acknowledge each other with respect. The CDU leader Armin Laschet stressed the need for unity among the sister parties, saying Europe and the world is counting on it. It is our goal in this situation in which the country finds itself, with a chancellor who is leaving office, to create as much unity as possible between the CDU and CSU, because the stakes are high. Europe closely looks at how Germany develops. The world expects a stable Germany, and that is why we as the CDU-CSU have a special responsibility. So let's just briefly dwell on this, because I think um, potentially the outcome of this will be seismic. Um, This is a coalition that is losing electoral support for all sorts of reasons. But one of those we know very prominently is the management of the COVID crisis here. Um, And there is this growing sense that Germans are starting to think about a change of political direction after so many years where Angela Merkel has been the lodestone effectively for the German nation. The polls are coming up in September, not very, not very far away now. And we have this 
uh, almighty clash now between the CSU and the CDU, effectively in the forms of these two gentlemen. I think this is going to be a fascinating showdown, albeit in a very German way, which means it will largely be polite and well-mannered, as we've just heard in that soundbite. But let's not underestimate the importance and the consequences, not only for Germany, but the rest of Europe. It has been said that this is just not the way things are done in Germany, that uh, the head of the CDU is typically then seen as that the Chancellor candidate for the CDU and also the CSU. But it does take me back not too long ago to last year where we had that shock resignation of AKK. I mean, she was seen as the successor to Angela Merkel at the time and then decided to step down. I mean, there had been a series of events leading up to that, but things did not go smoothly in that uh, pr progression either. So this seems a little bit of a shock. And of course, we are much closer to the election, five and a half months out. And it seems as though COVID, the crisis that has played out in Germany, has been uh, not a good one for Laschet's ambitions, that he hasn't been seen as being decisive enough. Söder, who was seen as somewhat of a disruptor, uh, probably uh, you know getting to become the head of Bavaria was seen as the end of his ambition, that he wouldn't challenge for Chancellor. But he's had a great crisis and his ratings, his approval has gone up. He's seen as very, very decisive in crisis management, and that's put him to the forefront of German politics right now. The question is what the governing council decides, whether they are also willing to disrupt German politics. And that would send a message about this nice gentlemanly succession that's played out over the years, that maybe that's not the way things will always be carried out. So will the governing council go down that pathway to save the party potentially? and uh, try and secure the leadership, Donald I think that's absolutely right. I mean, Laschet's uh, polling numbers, as you look at the weekend reports, just don't seem to be good enough for him to continue that uh, mantle uh, and that tradition that you mentioned. Um, the other interesting aspect to this story, as we, as we broaden it out, is just how the Greens are gaining support at this stage. And we've looked to the Greens, I guess, over the years on occasions to be uh, in part kingmakers in coalitions in Germany, because inevitably we probably are looking at another form of coalition government. The question is who just has the dominant hand in that coalition. But as you look at the collapse in support that the CDU, CSU has experienced from uh, January, uh, the opinion polls uh, had them at 36% back in January, 27% now. Meanwhile, the Greens have gone from 19 to 22%. It does increasingly look like uh, we are going to face, um, as we have done in Italy and other parts of Europe, again, an increasingly divided political coalition that will lead Germany forward here. So it is very important, I think, that the figurehead in in the form of the chancellor uh, be a strong individual with um, the politics that I think can be readily understood and have a, um, in the way that we've seen with Angela Merkel, a degree of conviction. Yeah, I mean, now we're getting into the thinking of what the governing council has to try and assess themselves, the popularity, how they ward off the challenge of the Greens with this patchwork coalition that everybody's setting up for, and that's a very much a market known at this point. The market sees the risk of a slight change of this grand coalition that we've known in recent years. But I think the other point is 
if we're looking for leadership here, we also need to be considering leadership for Europe. And while Laschet was seen as a continuity candidate, very much like Merkel, did he really have the same aspects, the same leadership quality mm. that she's carried being able to rally all of the countries across Europe in key moments of crisis? And this particular crisis, Germany has been struggling with its vaccine and its COVID story. That's not a positive one, not a positive narrative as you try and rally other countries across the block together. So perhaps Zodo offers stronger leadership down the track. And you know, I'm sure our colleague Annette will be joining us a little bit later to talk about his views and, and how he fits into the uh, European Parliament type of situation and what sort of colours he brings and what sort of strength he brings with those partnerships. But uh, I think it'll be interesting if we're looking for Germany to be a leader in Europe in coming years. There is always that question, isn't there? When the, when the American president picks up the phone, who does he speak to mm -hmm. when he wants to talk to Europe? Uh, will it be someone at the Commission? Will it be someone at the EU more broadly? Or is it ultimately the German Chancellor? Uh, right. And increasingly, I think we know the answer to that one. Um, as far as the markets are concerned, you mentioned the markets. Germany's been on a tear. I mean, the reality is, even as we've got used to underperformance in the European markets more broadly against the North American markets, Germany's actually been hitting new all-time highs. Um, and in part, I think that just reflects the fact that even as Germany has been impacted by COVID, like a lot of other key European powers, they've done a, a better job getting the industrial and manufacturing side of the economy back up and running. And the markets have taken that message rather than be concerned about the perpetual lockdowns that we keep reporting. Yeah, stunning PMIs we saw recently for Germany versus some of the other countries. Uh, we're going to uh, squeeze in a quick break, but coming up on the show, Fed Chair Jerome Powell says the US economy is at an inflection point as he warns the pace of the recovery could be slowed by new virus cases. And for more on the race to succeed German Chancellor Angela Merkel and for what it means for one of the key drivers of the European economy, you can check out the Squawkbox podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Chair Jerome Powell says the U.S. recovery has begun to accelerate thanks to heavy fiscal spending and an uptick in the pace of vaccinations. But in an interview with CBS, Powell warned the country faces potential headwinds from a surge in new COVID cases. Powell also said the collapse of Archegos Capital stemmed from a, quote, risk management breakdown, adding the Fed is looking into the incident to make sure it does not happen again. A quick look at U.S. futures, how we perched ahead of the trading day. You can see we're chasing a little bit red at this point, a triple-digit point downbeat day expected for the Dow, 111 points off so far, but also in lockstep in the red for the S&P and for the Nasdaq at this point, which takes us to where we closed up markets on the Friday session. We did have a bit of a pop again for the Dow and the S&P, 
travelling to fresh all-time highs for those major indices. At nearly 300-odd points on the Dow as we wrapped up that Friday trade and just looking at some of the big movers, United Health, one of the big moving stocks, but also in the backdrop to Apple. We've seen a real recovery trade in the lead-up to earnings around Apple's stock, and that has been a huge driver for the Dow, the S&P, and also for the Nasdaq. But uh, I think worth noting, if you looked at the sectors as well last week, we had an outstanding performance from the technology sector, very much leading the sectors higher, and that was also reflected somewhat in the Nasdaq performance, uh, not to mention the fact that energy, which has been one of the recovery plays, that was one of the underperformers in session over the course of last week. But uh, other pockets in the market where you've seen some appetite, financials, that saw a fresh record close in session, along with industrials and consumer discretionary. So uh, not just technology at uh, some of those peak levels, other sectors have played in that uh, rally as well. The Dow Jones Transports, uh, this is one area where the market we've been closely eyeing for the recovery trade. It did break a three-day losing streak, so there's just been a patch of weakness around this sector. Uh, over the course of the week, it was still up but just over 1%, 10th paused a week in a row. So you can see that direction on the recovery play very much there, and it's only tracking about 1% off its highs. So uh, even though other areas of the market have garnered a lot more attention over the course of last week. There's still been very much a recovery play taking place in this sector. Uh, the U.S. technology names, we mentioned uh, the strong performance, and this is how it looked in the Friday session. 2% higher for the likes of Apple. Amazon strong as well. 2.2% pop there, but patches of weakness. Facebook under a little bit of pressure, along with Twitter, just uh, managing to, to pull into the red despite some of that stronger green elsewhere. Tesla also uh, weathering out a weaker session. The Treasury's picture, it was worth noting that as we travelled across the week, we didn't see huge amount of appetite for that US 10-year Treasury yield, very much uh, cooling off from some of the higher ranges. But is it just a lull at this point before we revisit uh, higher levels as a lot of the quarters of the market continue to stress about that inflation picture? Jeff. Terrific, Karen. Thank you. Let's bring in Michael Yoshikami, then CEO and founder of Destination Wealth Management. Michael, good to have you with us this morning. Look, as we uh, enter earnings season, what advice would you have to our investing audience about how engaged they should continue to be with the market at these levels? Well, I think they should be engaged. I think earnings are probably going to be not as bad as people think. There are some positive expectations, but I think you very well could see a beat on positive expectations, given that um, companies have been so downcast in terms of what's been happening in the pandemic crisis. You know, the real key issue for me is what Powell thinks, uh, Chairman Powell thinks, where inflation is at, where interest rates are headed. So uh, I noticed uh, coming into the break, you were talking about how Powell was warning that COVID could create headwinds. The other thing he said during that interview is that we're at an inflection point and we could see strong economic growth. That's where I think investors need to be focused. What does inflation data look like? Yeah, the trouble with that, Michael, is that he's covering all bases effectively. I mean, they, as far as that line is concerned, uh, expect a range of expectations. I mean, ultimately, the message underpinning uh, Powell's position seems to be that we're prepared to run the economy hot in monetary policy terms. So I, I guess we can take that as a given. To what extent then do we need to worry about whether Joe Biden can get his infrastructure package through the Senate? Oh, well, I wouldn't worry um, about that happening. There's going to be an infrastructure package somehow. I don't know exactly what the numbers are going to look like. It's going to be two trillion, one trillion. Uh, uh, the administration has always sig already signaled that they are going to cooperate and negotiate. Uh, but that's one of the headwinds, I think, for the economy. Um, in addition to uh, the COVID situation, 
Um, you know, when you have increased taxes, when you have increased deficits, um, uh, it does create somewhat of a headwind, even though you're going to be pumping money into the system short term on a long term basis. So I think there's a lot of factors at play right now. Earnings, what are deficits going to look like? What's the infusion of capital going to look like? Interest rates. Um, so I think there's a big bag of um, indicators that one needs to carefully assess as you move forward uh, here in the United States, certainly in 2021. Michael, can we talk about sentiment in coming months? Because Jay Powell's made it pretty clear he wants to see and touch inflation before they move on rates. A very different uh, approach to what we've had from central banks before, where they uh, try to anticipate in future. As we set up for this US inflation number this week that's expected to sh show a jump in March, along with retail uh, sales that are also seen surging. Don't we have the potential for the market to, to get ahead of itself, that it's going to have to assess the data first, make a move on, on the yield curve, and then eventually we get some commentary from Jay Powell down the track? Oh, absolutely. In fact, if the inflation numbers come in hotter than expected and um, the CPI, for example, PPI come in hotter than expected, the uh, market's already ahead of itself. That's why I think this is really going to be a volatile year in the markets and investors should be prepared for that. Um, be a bit defensive when markets are hitting all-time highs, maybe not get out of all equities, um, but certainly take profits and names that have rallied significantly and be prepared when there are pullbacks because there are going to be pullbacks. I'm of the belief there will be two or three pullbacks this year uh, based on, I think, a pretty bumpy uh, set of news headlines are going to come throughout the, head of, throughout the course of the year. Investors need to be prepared for that. So I think it's entirely possible, Karen, the market's already ahead of itself. It's at an all-time high right now. It's hard to get much more ahead of yourself than that. Michael, getting into some of your allocation ideas, uh, you've uh, given a shout-out to financials, and you say dividends matter. We're setting up for bank earnings this week. The likes of uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, scheduled to report this week. We've been a little bit spooked in Europe around the Archegos fallout and how that's impacted some of the banks. But what sort of shape are the U.S. lenders in at this point? U.S. lenders are in pretty good shape. And I'll, I'll tell you why, because um, much of the reserves that were set aside for the expectation of significant home uh, defaults, uh, those defaults really didn't happen. Um, and so you really have excess reserves that we put back into the bank balance sheet uh, to be spent for other purposes. Uh, you are going to have higher net interest margins. You're already starting to see that trickle out uh, through the financials. Um, what happened to uh, the hedge fund problems recently that you've seen is, I think, absolutely what Jay Powell said. It was really a risk management issue. That's why it's been limited to a few banks, um, one of which obviously was significantly affected in Europe. So I can understand why Europe focuses on that. U.S. banks, I think, are pretty healthy uh, as long as there are risk controls in place, as far as we know they are. Uh, and Michael, uh, Karen referenced uh, some of the challenges for Europe. Um, we are getting better economic data now in Europe. Are Americans going to start diverting some of their cash towards European markets, do you think, on perhaps better valuations? Uh, I think they ought to. I think valuations in Europe are looking pretty appealing relative to the United States, particularly if you track the S&P 500 PE and the current PE, you see a pretty significant um, gap above historical uh, PE here in the United States. So I think there are places on a global basis. Uh, Europe is one of those places on a selective, um, from a selective standpoint. I would caution, though, to be careful about emerging markets. I know there's a, a drumbeat. The EM is very cheap and it's historically cheap. And this is the year it's going to turn around. 
Uh, remember, EM is affected by what's happening from a COVID basis as well. Uh, and so I think you got to be cautious in that area. But I think a global diversified portfolio makes a lot of sense right now. And emerging markets are uh, having a tough time, I think, uh, at this stage. A lot of that to do with concerns, I think, about COVID and how well they're tackling the pandemic at this right. stage. Just give us a, a few more thoughts on, on how you f- feel about the emerging market trade sure. and whether there's any of the countries that you feel it's worth entering new positions in at this point. Well, I, you know, if you start going shopping by countries, now it all depends on what the COVID responses. Philippines, for example, has a huge resurgence of COVID. Chinese just uh, uh, shockingly actually announced that even their vaccine is really not terribly effective compared to Western vaccines. I think EM is a a place to be careful of your directly investing for a lot of reasons, currency, political risk, see what's happening in Myanmar right now. But I think you can get EM exposure by multinational U.S. companies, multinational European countries that have that have uh, revenue that they derive or receive revenue from emerging markets without necessarily having to buy an emerging market asset that is domiciled in that country. I think that's the way you play EM. In terms of direct EM, I'd be cautious at this point. Always a pleasure. Thanks for staying up for us. Michael Yoshikami, CEO and founder of Destination Wealth Management. Uh, And CNBC Pro users can find more on the U.S. recovery, including a look at key stocks set to benefit from the rally by heading to our website. That, of course, is CNBC.com. ECB President Christine Lagarde says she expects the pace of the EU recovery to increase later this year, despite a fresh wave of COVID cases and a slow vaccine roll. Out. Speaking to CNBC, Lagarde added monetary policy will remain flexible to help support growth. She also predicted the US is likely to reach its 2% inflation target before Europe. This emergency pandemic program is um, characterized by complete flexibility. Uh, flexibility across time, across asset classes, across countries. And we decided when it was needed to extend it and to expand it. We did it twice. Uh, If it is necessary to do it again, we will do it again. Uh, If it is necessary to spend more than what has been uh, identified, we will do so. If we can spend less because the situation improves uh, fast, we will do so as well. So we will use the flexibility uh, in all respects and The commitment that we have under the pandemic emergency program is to make sure that it supports the economy and helps us reach our goal of price stability up until such time when the governing council decides that the pandemic crisis is over. We've assumed that it would be March uh, up until now. If it needs to be extended because the governing council determines that the crisis is likely to last longer, we will extend it. Coming up on Squawk Box today marks a milestone for England as pubs and restaurants reopen for outdoor service for the first time in three and a half months. We're live from central London next.
Welcome back, everybody. Marcus Soda shakes up German politics as the Bavarian Premier announces his intention to run for Chancellor against the CDU's Armin Laschet, with party leaders set to decide on their preferred candidate later today. Fed Chair Jerome Powell says the US economy is at an inflection point but is warning that risks remain as the Dow and the S&P hit fresh record highs ahead of the start of earnings season this week. Alibaba shares rally despite regulators fining the e-commerce group $2.8 billion for violating China's anti-monopoly law, but the group says it doesn't expect to suffer material impact from that move. Microsoft is in advanced talks to buy speech recognition group Nuance for $16 billion as CNBC sources learn the deal could be announced as early as today. Reports the U.S. vaccine rollout will slow this week with Johnson & Johnson scaling back shipments of its single dose of COVID-19 vaccine by 86%. This comes as the pharma giant grapples with manufacturing issues at a plant in Baltimore. The government allocated only 700,000 shots to states this week. That's 4.9 million fewer doses than last week. The Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine may be less effective against coronavirus variants first found in South Africa and the UK. This according to an Israeli study which shows the variants are able to partially, quote, break through the vaccine, but that study has not yet been peer-reviewed. Meanwhile, China is apparently considering mixing its COVID-19 vaccines to help make them more effective, as the country's top disease control official warns the current vaccines, quote, don't have very high rates of protection. Sinovac was found to be 50.4% effective by researchers in Brazil. By comparison, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine has a 97% efficacy rate. India reported almost 169,000 new COVID cases on Sunday, a record daily increase. The total number of infections rose to 13.5 million, surpassing Brazil to become the second worst hit country by the disease. India's Nifty 50 index fell on the news. Uh, the uh, severe fallout from COVID across the country knocking stocks, as you can see, off more than 2% on that index. Germany's federal government has drafted new legislation that would see it take control of the country's lockdown measures. The move would see new restrictions introduced on a national level rather than on a state-by-state basis. These measures could include curfews and forced school closures in the worst-hit areas. The new legislation is expected to be put before the German parliament by the end of this week. All shops, gyms and hairdressers in England are allowed to reopen today. Pubs and restaurants can restart their service, but only to customers dining and drinking outdoors. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson said the latest easing round is, quote, a major step forward in a roadmap to freedom, but urged people to behave responsibly. And Jeff, normally, you know, we're ahead of the story, we're out (coughs) in the field before anyone's done anything like this. 
but uh, I hear people going to the pub at midnight last night and going to the hairdresser at midnight as the reopening set in. Yeah, I mean, there's a carnival atmosphere about this. Uh, let's hope the government's got it right, because I think this is the key here. We don't want to be in the situation we were back in the third quarter of last year, where we all thought we were coming out of this prolonged period of lockdown, and then ultimately the numbers started to creep up again, and then we had to go into a second round of closures. So I know that people have been rushing out to go to the pub that opened early and to get early haircuts. Fingers crossed they've got the roadmap right this time round. Yeah, it's really mixed advice, isn't it? You can only sit outside in a restaurant or pub, but yet you can exercise indoor with people at this point. It's, uh, you know, the advice is uh, a little bit strange, I've got to say. Let's get out to Juliana for more. And Juliana and I both live in a very similar area. And I saw yesterday and across on Saturday that all these structures going up on the road so they could weather more outdoor seating in some of these cafes and restaurants that have been shut for many months. Oh, absolutely, Karen. It is a really, I would say, exciting to see so many new structures cropping up all over London in anticipation of today, this milestone in the roadmap to reopening. And I'm standing here in central London in the middle of Covent Garden, and they have been doing exactly that. Uh, before uh, the lockdowns, there was capacity to cover 300 tables outside, and they've been working through the last three and a half months of lockdown to add new seating. And now there's up to 800 covers available here, and no doubt that is representative of what we're seeing across the country. So today, in terms of what changes, you mentioned the headlines. We are going to be able to dine outside at pubs and restaurants for the first time since December. In terms of shops, non-essential stores will be able to reopen, hairdressers, zoos, libraries, all of these things reopening for the first time since December. Now, Jeff, you mentioned how during the last two national lockdowns and when we emerged from them, we were all hoping those would be the last ones as well, and we all know how that played out. One major difference, of course, this time round versus last is the vaccination rollout. Now more than half of the adult population in the UK has been given at least one dose of vaccine. Case numbers have come down significantly. We on Saturday logged uh, just over 2,500 new cases of COVID. That's down to about a sixth of what it was during the January peak. So transmission has come down significantly, but of course people are treading carefully. And here at Covent Garden, there are going to be crowd control measures in place to ensure that people are, are, are obliging with the rules, wearing masks and social distancing as they re-enter shops and restaurants. Guys? Thank you very much for that, Juliana. Let's get to Patrick Hukas, who is Managing Director of The Fork. And Patrick, you've been watching some of those bookings flood into restaurants and pubs at this point. What jumped out to me is that there is a rush to try and secure some seating, a very limited capacity at some venues. I noticed some of the other restaurants are not taking any bookings at this point. They just want walk-in business because they really don't know what to expect. Just talk us through the demand picture as you see it with this reopening. Good morning. Well, what we, uh, what we see on uh, the fork.co.uk is that people are making more reservations. If we look uh, week on week, we see an increase of uh, around 88% week on week again. When it comes to where people are booking, I imagine that's somewhat disrupted at this point too. We still don't have a, a lot of traffic into the city area with a lot of work from home. How does that skew the sort of bookings you're witnessing on your site? Is it closer to home, more local bookings that are taking place at this point? Well, what we what we have seen is that uh, people are booking more more local. You see that there is still some some fear of um, of going into the into the city centre, but on the other hand, there is uh, there is no fear. What we see at least on the site is that there is no fear of going to the restaurants. 
people are are really looking forward to go out again. Uh, Patrick, can I ask you, I mean, obviously there's a dilemma here for a lot of uh, restaurants. They have to make a decision about whether they open and are running unprofitable business because they have so few covers outdoors or whether they just remain closed and take their chances with any further government support. What message are you getting back from the industry as a whole here? Because for a lot of them, given the staff they'll have to lay on and the costs associated with opening, this could be a tough, unprofitable period until we allow diners to eat inside. Yes, I'm, I'm, I understand your question, but on the on the other hand, this is this is the business. Uh, this is their business, and they they like serving the food to their to their to their people to their to their guests. And um, what we really believe is that if we have finally the restaurants open, at least on the terraces, the business is back on, and um, it will take. What if I if I look at what happened after wave one? around two, two and a half months before we got back to uh, uh, COVID, the pre-COVID uh, levels at, at, at wave one. So there is, there is definitely a, a, a future ahead. And uh, the moment the restaurants open up again, we, we believe that business is back on. Patrick, how would you describe the shape that the industry is in at this moment? Um, I mean, I've, I've looked around um, to make bookings on the reopening and of the, the three or four places that I looked at, at least one of them didn't look as though it was opening at all, which I assume means they probably run into some financial problems. How resilient or robust do you think the industry is at this stage? What we have seen after, uh, during wave one and after wave one is that the, the restaurant industry was really resilient. They, they, they took the right measures. Um, now we have to see what happens after wave, after wave two. But I believe that the, because of resiliency, that the business is back uh, very soon. Uh, and now we have, to, we have to see this one. Patrick, I want to talk about the product offering a little bit. Uh, traditionally in the past, you know, getting the venue right, spending enough money, the venue looked incredible for, for diners to turn up to, creating that experience. Also getting the, the mix of food and drink and service correct was part of the overall product offering. Now it feels like there's another dimension to around COVID safety. You know, for instance, I went to a cafe recently and uh, the people were preparing my coffee and talking over the top of it, which, as we know, is not COVID friendly. Is there some messaging in this for restaurants when they reopen to get it right on the COVID safety standards? What, what we have done at, uh, at the fork.co.uk is we have um, given certificates uh, to ensure that the restaurants are, are, are adhering to, to the rules. So and this is also something that when a guest goes on our site, makes a reservation, and then afterwards can, can rate how good, that, uh, how good the measurements were. So I do believe that people want to understand before they go into a restaurant how much the restaurant is adhering to those uh, to those rules and this is also how we would like to help those uh, those restaurants but also more important even the guests that want to make a reservation and patrick what's your view on the issue of covid passports at this point we do have a track and trace system so there is some element of uh um, informed decision-making as far as the venues are concerned. But would it be useful, do you think, if there were some kind of vaccine-proof document that you displayed to the establishment as you booked? 
what um, what we think as uh, as the fork.co.uk, but also as the fork.com, because we are we are in in the leader in in Europe. We believe that the 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 government is is in a better state to make that to make that assessment. They they know country by country what should be the best uh, best part, and uh, what we ask our restaurants, what we ask our diners, is to to follow those guidance. Patrick, just quickly, in terms of bookings, uh, I've seen on a number of the, the reservation sites in the UK that you're now required to put a credit card down for some of the bookings. Has that managed to tackle the cancellations that restaurants typically have to, had to wear down, you know, previously before this crisis? Well, what you what is what is really important, and this is also what I urge to to all the diners, is that when they make a reservation, is that they also show up. Um, there is, there has been a, a no-show, which is part of, of our industry. We've also seen that uh, after wave one, there was a 1% decrease in, in no-show. So the people are aware and um, um, are conscious of showing up. And I believe that if we continue talking, also like now, that the, the, the diners have to go back to the restaurants and then also show up, that this will really help the restaurant to, uh, to bounce back. Um, one of those tools is indeed credit card, but even more important is that the people are conscious and uh, are making sure that they show up when they made a reservation. Patrick, thank you very much for joining us today. Patrick Ukas with us, Managing Director of The Fork. Thank you. Buckingham Palace has announced that the funeral for the Duke of Edinburgh will take place next Saturday at 1600 CET at St George's Chapel, Windsor. The service is set to begin with a nationwide minute of silence and will be attended by Queen Elizabeth and members of the royal family. Prince Philip passed away on Friday at the age of 99, having been married to the Queen for 73 years. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.